0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, um, we are in Genesis 6 this morning, which is the beginning of the flood narrative. And um, you may be wondering if God is saying something to us here with... Uh, We're we're not actually going to get into the flood until next Sunday, but if it's still raining by then, I think we might need to start making preparations, but um, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles in the the chair in front of you, and you can find Genesis 6 in the first few pages, probably page 4 or 5 or 6, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, as we always say, you're welcome to keep that Bible as uh, our gift to you. Have you ever thought you were right only to find out that you were actually wrong? (laughs) And you regretted the certainty with which you thought you were right when you set out on that venture? Well, I have. When I was uh, probably around 10 years old, I was probably in the second or third grade or, well, I guess I would be... That's a little younger. I don't know how old I was. It was the late 70s, early 80s. And I have a brother who is three years older than me, my only sibling. And I looked up to him, but I always, and this I think is evidence of sort of this little arrogance in me that existed as a little kid. I always kind of felt like my brother was a little intellectually slow. At least that was my perception of him. (laughs) He was big and tough and brawny and I was kind of a weak little guy and I always thought I was smarter than him. And one day I found a book report that my brother had done that he had not yet turned in and it was done on a piece of paper with a pencil. Um, I know you kids these days don't know what the pencils were actually little writing instruments that you'd use to write down words, but um, his report was on a man named Bing Crosby. I had never heard of Bing Crosby, but I had heard of Bill Cosby, <laughs> and I was feeling so bad for my less than sharp older brother who couldn't even spell the word Bill. For some crazy reason, he spelled Bill Bing. And I thought, oh, my poor brother. Thank goodness he wrote his report in pencil. Yeah. I went through his one-page book report on Bing Crosby and changed... all of the bings to bills not even realizing that there was a difference in the last name because I knew better well soon thereafter I found that I was wrong (laughs) and it went badly for me uh, needless to say and I regretted my decision does God regret his decisions does God feel sorry for things that he has done. Well, I think that's the main text. That's the main question of the text that we're going to look at this morning. So let me, let me pray and let me read then the first few verses of Genesis 6, which is one of the trickiest passages in the whole Bible. There are some thorny issues in this text. Before we even get to considering whether or not God, what it means for God to regret, there's this whole idea of these mysterious sons of God in Nephilim. So we've got some work to do this morning. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we come to your word, we do thank you for uh, even the, the rain and the thunder. You are watering the earth with it and reminding us that you are in charge of weather, of the universe, of clouds, of thunder. And even as you're watering the earth, we pray that you would water our hearts with with the water of your word. We pray, as Isaiah says in chapter 55, that it would not return void in our lives, but that it would cause fruit. For the Christian, I pray that that fruit would be encouragement and conviction and more formation into the image of Christ. For the person in this room who's not yet trusting in Jesus, I pray that even as we look at a tricky, maybe even potentially confusing Old Testament passage, that ultimately what would, what would shine forth is Jesus and His work, and that the fruit that would be born in that unbeliever's life that has come into this room this morning would be repentance and faith and a new heart so that they can trust in Jesus. That's the issue today, Lord. So I pray that you would do these things. I pray that you would help us. You would humble us, that your word would examine us, that we wouldn't examine it, and it would um, show us beautiful things. Help us now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read in Genesis 6, verse 1. Interesting passage. When God, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them... The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old. The men of renown. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord Regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, in just these eight verses, these are some of the trickiest uh, interpretive problems in the whole Bible. These eight verses have given people, uh, studiers of Scripture over the ages, maybe more trouble collectively than uh, maybe any passage in the Bible. So we've got to answer, I've got to ask and attempt to answer a few questions before we can get to the heart of the passage. The first question that I think just jumps out at us is, who are these sons of God that is mentioned in, in verse 2? The, the sons of God that saw the daughters of man and were attracted to them and they took any as they chose as, as their wives. And then who are these Nephilim in verse 4? These mysterious Nephilim, whatever that word means. It's mentioned only twice in the Bible. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. So let's look at the phrase, the sons of God, first. There's three general views on who these sons of of God are or were. One view is that they were fallen angels that have come to earth and have taken on human form in some capacity and have left their dwelling place and part of their rebellion against God was that they were now sort of crossing the boundary of angels to people, and were were taking these human women as their wives? And the reason that some people believe this, they would point to verses in the New Testament, like Second Peter chapter two and verse four, where. Peter writes that uh, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, they're looking at, well, maybe this is referring to, uh, along with the rebellion of pride that we, I think, happens uh, clearly even before the Garden of Eden, we see one of maybe the consequences of these fallen angels is that they have rebelled against God and sinned, and this is part of that that sin of these fallen angels. And then uh, people that believe this view would point also to to Jude, which is just one chapter right at the end of the Bible, verse 6, and it says that the angels who did did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so uh, this view looks at these these this verse and sort of uh, connects these these this text in Genesis six and says, Well, these angels left their position of authority or their proper dwelling and have taken on these human women as as wives. And that, that certainly is is possible. I think the reasons maybe that work against this this view of fallen angels is it would seem odd that these angels would be referred to as sons of God. If they are, in fact, fallen angels. Now, certainly in the Bible, especially in Job and in other places, angels are referred to as sons of God. But here, um, these are fallen angels. And so it would seem that there would be some maybe phrase that would refer to them not as still in good status. And it's also true, I think this works against this view, is that um, several times in the Bible people are referred to as sons of God. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, just one example amongst several others, is that people are referred to as sons of God. So this phrase, sons of God, does not necessarily mean that it has to be a heavenly being. And then I think another reason that would probably push against this view of fallen angels is that the context of the passage is that God, whatever's happening here, and certainly there's some mystery and difficulty as we think about it, whatever's happening here is it is building an argument in that God is going to punish mankind, not angels. So if it does refer to the verse in Second Peter and Jude 6... That verse is speaking kind of of the punishment of angels, where it seems to be what's in view here contextually is, is that whatever is happening between these sons of God and these Nephilim, it seems to be building an argument that the context is the punishment of mankind and not of fallen angels. So those are some reasons for and against. Another view, a second sort of historical view, is that these uh, sons of God are tyrannical judges like Evil despot judges that come from the line of Lamech. Do you remember Robert's sermon last week about the horrible line of people that came from Lamech? Just this bad seed, this man who just beats his chest at the end of Genesis four, and and you know just takes is really saying that his vengeance is worse than God's vengeance. Just the disparity of the debauchery of mankind. And a view, a second view, is that these are tyrannical judges from the line of Lamech, maybe even demon-possessed tyrannical judges. I, I, I found less support for this than, than the other views. There doesn't appear to be much in the text to support this. A third view would be that this phrase, the sons of God, refers to men, human beings, who were descendants of the godly line of Seth. And I think, personally, although I'm, you know, listen, this is not a crucial issue where you stand. This is certainly an open-handed issue. Faithful people fall on different sides of this. I think, humbly, that this makes the most sense and seems to fit the context. But, and the reason I think that is that the argument that, that the writer Moses is is making here the Holy Spirit clearly is making through Moses as he writes this, is that there are these two lines that come from Adam and I think Robert did I've referred to it already twice. So if you if you missed last Sunday because it was time change, don't raise your hand. But you really want to get that message from Robert. He just did a wonderful job of of, of, of explaining a very difficult passage and the importance of what is happening in these early chapters of Genesis where. Uh, God has created. He's created everything very good. And then Adam and Eve fall in the garden and sin enters humanity. And now Adam and Eve bear children and the first son kills the second son, and so then they start over again with Seth, and so you have these two lines. I think Genesis 4 and 5 are very is very concerned with, with establishing these genealogies. In fact, in the early chapters of Genesis, you see this phrase, these are the generations of. It's a real sort of rhythmic pattern in the early chapters of Genesis, showing the importance of the line, and ultimately we see that Jesus comes from You know, from the line of Seth. So we see this importance of genealogy, which we're going to get to later when we continue in Genesis 9 and 10 and 11. But I think what's happening here in Genesis 4 and 5 is that the writer is establishing the line of Cain, which was wicked and fallen, and the line of Seth where at the end of Genesis 4, it speaks about these men that begin to call upon the name of the Lord, these righteous, godly men from the line of Seth. And so I think that there is a contrast being drawn here between the hopeless line of Lamech, of Cain and Lamech, and the hope-filled line of Seth. And so that these sons of God are not... Um, angels or supernatural beings but that in this view these sons of God are the godly line of Seth that then intermarry and intermingle with these daughters of men so there's this sort of juxtaposition the sons of God and the daughters of men the sons of God speaking to their godliness and the daughters of men speaking to their fallenness and so Clearly, though, Seth was fallen. I'm not saying that Seth was was perfect in any way. But there seems to be this contrast being drawn. Well, is that what the sons of God are? I'm not exactly 100% sure. These are the three views. I lean towards the third, and I think that's probably what's happening here. But I could be wrong. But what now about the Nephilim in verse 4? So if the sons of God is fallen angels or godly descendants of of Seth, that there's a contrast being drawn here between this godly line and this fallen line and how they're intermingling, then what about these Nephilim in verse 4? Who are these mysterious uh, beings? It says in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So some people historically have speculated that these Nephilim are the offspring of these marriages between the sons of God and the daughters of men. Maybe, but if we read closely, the Bible doesn't actually say that necessarily. Let's read verse 4 again closely. It says that the Nephilim, whoever they are, were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. So it's saying that the Nephilim were around, whoever they are, when these sons of God, whoever they are, married these daughters of men, and they bore children. And so it's saying that there's these, there's these marriages going on that's producing children, and all of this is happening around the same time that there is this group of beings or people or whatever they are called the Nephilim in this day. And then the children of the sons of God and the daughters of man. Who are they? Well, it says it right there in the last sentence of verse 4. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So again, it doesn't really answer the question for us who these Nephilim are. It's just a mysterious title. We see this word Nephilim used only once again in the Bible in Numbers chapter 13 where God's people are on the edge of the promised land. And I'm sure you've you've probably heard or read the story where they're spying out the promised land. And remember, there's two spies that have a very optimistic sort of God-centered view, like, yeah, we can do this. And then there's the other pessimistic, scared spies who look in over the mountains and say, no, they are like giants. They're like Nephilim, and we, compared to them, are like grasshoppers. And so people have speculated because these, these faithless spies in Numbers chapter 13... Are calling the people the Canaanites or whoever they are in the promised land, like giants like Nephilim, that they have no chance to to to, to beat the, to beat them in battle that they must refer to these really big human beings that maybe are like the supernatural offspring of these fallen angels, well, maybe, but again i don 't think the text demands that in fact, uh, the word Nephilim in Hebrew at its core doesn't mean giant, it means fallen ones. Testing one, two? Well, if there are fallen ones, they're in my little battery pack right now messing with us. So who are these Nephilim? Well, I don't think the text really answers it for us definitively that they are necessarily the offspring of the sons of God. I think as far as we can go is that they were probably rough, tough, maybe very big men who used their strength to intimidate and get their way. They were a group of people or offspring of, of fallen angelic beings, if you prefer that, but they were a group of beings who were self-absorbed, fallen bullies. And, and whatever you think about the sons of God, I think that they were people. And I think the Nephilim is just a class of particularly intimidating, arrogant people. But if you think that there's something angelic going on there, that's fine. But whatever the case, don't miss the point of what's going on in the first four verses of this passage. It's not some obscure point to find out the identity of these sons of God or Nephilim. That's not the main point. The main point is that h- human society... And now the once godly line of Seth that was calling upon the name of the Lord at the end of chapter 4 is now intermingling and is now just as jacked up as anybody else. And God is bringing judgment on people for their rebellion and debauchery. I think that's the main point of what's going on in the first four Verses of Genesis chapter six, and just a brief little aside here, I think this will just this is just a helpful thing to remember when you 're reading the Bible and when you encounter difficult passages like this. be cautious about making too much of obscure passages like this. Is this difficult? Yes, no doubt this is a challenge, but be cautious about about being too fascinated about obscure passages like this. I think some people make the mistake of focusing on uh, different, obscure interpretations and, and really arguing these things rather than, I think, the central point that the passage is trying to make and ultimately point us towards towards the gospel. I think people that get really juiced up about obscure things like this are kind of like the people that Paul was speaking to Timothy about in 1 Timothy 1, and he says that they're people that devote themselves to promote speculations and they wander away into vain discussions. And they desire to be teachers, but don't understand what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. I'm not saying that we should not try and figure out things like this or labor over difficult passages. But let's not kind of get caught up in the rough off the fairway. Does that make sense? Let's let's, let's get back into the central point of the passage. And so what is the main point that is being made here is that I think God is displaying his anger and we see that in verse 5 through 8. God is upset because humankind is rebelling against him and is doing whatever they want. The main point is that God is judging man's man-centeredness. I think that's the point of verses 1 through 4. God is giving us a picture of the man-centeredness of man. In fact, I think this is the first instance of cultural Christianity if we can call it that in the Bible. Right, so there's there's these former whatever they are, sons of God, godly people, whatever, fallen angels. There's these daughters of men. Just a couple chapters ago, we felt like there was newfound hope in the line of Seth after Cain and Lamech and all of his people jacked it up. Now, hopefully, there's going to be some people that are going to turn the tide, but even they are going to be drawn back by the rebellious culture and mix in with debauchery. And I think that we have here the first sort of picture of people that are followers of God on their lips, but their heart is increasingly pulled away by the tide of a rebellious culture. There's people here in this passage that are Christian in name only, or followers of God. Clearly, they aren't calling themselves Christians at this point. That comes later when Jesus comes, hundreds of years later. But they are calling upon God merely on the exterior. The Lord is a mere ornament in their lives. And I think we, we live, listen, we live in the land of, of cultural, merely nominal Christianity. Do you know what I mean when I say nominal Christianity? I'm talking about just, just kind of confessing things on your mouth and your heart being a million miles away. And it, it's just, it's rampant in our, our region. It's rampant in our country. But I think it's particularly rampant in this part of the country. Where it's just very easy to sort of, you know, confess Jesus. But not really have a heart that, that stands against the culture. I think it's very easy to just sort of have your Christianity as a kind of ornament, you know? To just kind of go to the prayer breakfast or be on the board or do this thing or whatever, but not really stand against a rebellious world. And this passage tells us that mankind is by nature wicked and depraved, he's lost. Mankind's deepest need isn't merely a change of behavior, but he needs a change of heart. And so then that gets us to the second, and I think more important, tricky question in this passage. And it is, what does it mean that the Lord regretted and was sorry that he made man? Well, let me read verses 5 through 8 again. Let's rehash that. So in response to this wickedness, that is, all throughout the world, in verses 1 through 4. The hope that we thought was going to come through Seth has again, once again, been dashed. And we find ourselves again in a hopeless, rebellious situation. And now in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about that. That, that, friends, is a statement of the human heart before Christ intervenes and rescues us. We're not born neutral. We're we're born as rebels, and that's that's the heart of the world, is is to be really inclined towards evil. I've used this analogy before because I think for most of us in sort of modern America, that sort of we think, oh, that's just, wait a minute, that just sounds like fundamentalist crazy language. Come on, Brad. Are people really evil? I mean, come on, what about people that do, you know, good works that aren't Christians? Are they really evil? Well, I think if we sort of pull back the layers of the onion and we realize that at the core of human goodness and morality that's not connected to God, that doesn't flow out of God's goodness, really at its core is idolatry. I've used the analogy before of maybe, you know, a young man who has every advantage. He has great parents who feed him, clothe him, send him to the best school. And then he leaves home, goes to a great, gets a great education, he gets a great job, and he starts to do all of this wonderful good stuff, but he doesn't call or acknowledge his parents. And when people ask him about his parents, he's like, who? I don't even know those people. What are you talking about? And so doesn't that just sort of cloud his goodness? His goodness actually becomes selfishness because he doesn't acknowledge or give credit to the source of the goodness, which was his parents who loved him and served him and gave him every advantage. Well, in the same way, friends, the world or a person that does not know God or worship God or give God glory is really, their goodness isn't good at all because it is untethered. It's, it's, it's detached from the only source of goodness. Goodness doesn't have any true definition when it is unhitched from the true fount of goodness, which is God. And goodness that doesn't give credit to the source of its goodness, which is God, is idolatry It's self-worship, it's people-worship, which is evil. And that's the state of mankind before God comes. And so in verse 6, it says that the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, so here's the question. What does it mean that the Lord regretted and was sorry that he made man? Does God regret like we do? Does God set out thinking that he knows what's going to happen Oh, it goes awry, and now he regrets it and has to backtrack. Well, in many other places, the Bible says clearly that God does not change. In fact, Wayne read one of those verses for us this morning out of Psalm 102, 25 through 27. It says that God does not change. In Numbers 23, I could spend a lot of time reading verses, but just let me give you three. Numbers 23, verse 19, it says, and this is coming from a false prophet who gets one thing right, and he gets this right. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So clearly, this scripture is saying God does not lie. Malachi 3.6, God says to the prophet, for I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17 in the New Testament, it says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. But in the passage that we just read, it seems to clearly say that God does regret and that he he does feel sorrow for a decision that he made. And so what are we to make of of these places in the Bible where it says that God doesn't change and here where it says that he has regret? In fact, to make it even more sort of perplexing, there's one chapter in the Bible, 1 Samuel 15, which says in the same chapter that God doesn't regret regret. And that God does regret in the same chapter. Don't you love that how the Bible just says, well, I'm going to put it all together in one little chapter for you just to blow your mind. <laughs> and what's happening in 1 Samuel 15 is that God is, has appointed Saul to be the leader of his people Israel. Samuel the prophet is speaking to him. And he tells Saul to do something very specific. Saul disobeys, lies to the prophet. And God says, I regret making Saul the king of Israel. And then a few verses later it says, but God never regrets. So what's happening here? What is going on? Is the Bible schizophrenic? Is the Bible contradicting itself? No. God in the scriptures is presented to us as the unchangeable, good, sovereign God who is outside of time. When the Bible speaks of God's unchangeableness or His immutability, which means He cannot change, it's speaking of His being, His character, His perfections, His purposes. But in verses like this, where it says that God is expressing real emotion, it is showing us that God does respond differently to human actions and this text is showing us that God is interested and passionate about his creation and about his people and how they respond to him. Here's a helpful quote from J.I. Packer, a wonderful British theologian who's getting up there in years. We reference him a lot, has written many classics and he wrote this about God's emotional state. About God's unchangeableness. And he says it is not impassivity, unconcern, and impersonal detachment in the face of creation, not insensitivity and indifference to the distresses of a fallen world, not inability, or unwillingness to empathize with human pain or grief, but simply that God's experiences do not come upon him as ours come upon us. For his are foreknown, willed, and chosen by himself, and are not involuntary surprises forced on him from outside, apart from his own decision in the way that ours regularly are. So God is not ever backing up, reacting, saying, oh my gosh, what's happening? I thought this was going to go good. There was hope in Adam. He blew it. There was hope in Seth. He blew it. Now what are we going to do? Shake the S-a-sketch and start over. Let's come with a plan B, Jesus and Holy Spirit. That's not the God of the Bible. The best example of the the combining of these two, the emotional intensity of God, but the sovereignty of God over all things, I think is displayed in the resurrection of Lazarus in the New Testament. So when you go home this afternoon, instead of taking a nap and watching college basketball, before you do any of that, read John chapter 11 and the story of Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the grave. An unbelievable combination of the emotions of God. Jesus, God in the flesh. At the beginning of the chapter, Mary and Martha, you know the story. These two sisters, they're upset at Jesus because he seems to be taking his own sweet time to get to Lazarus, who they have told him is sick. And Jesus, at the beginning of John chapter 11, says, Don't worry, this sickness is not going to lead to death. He's like this to bring glory to God. Jesus takes his own sweet time, and Lazarus actually dies. And we know he dies, because in the King James Version, I love this, it says that he stinketh. Yeah, yeah there you go. He stinketh. Why is that in the Bible? Just to, just to sort of hammer home the point that Lazarus is dead, flatline. And here's the amazing thing. At the beginning of the chapter, we see Jesus' sovereignty over the situation pointing to the fact that, no, what's going to about to happen in a, few, in a few days is just going to point to the glory of God. So Jesus is sort of signaling to us there that he's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. But yet when Jesus gets to the tomb eventually, and Mary and Martha are carrying on, and there's stench coming out of the tomb, What does it say that Jesus does? Is he a detached, impersonal, impatient God? I told you guys I was in control. Why are you so upset? Don't you have faith in me? Stop crying. Come on, step aside, step aside. Come back from the dead. Is that the way the story goes? No, what does it say that Jesus does before he brings him back from the dead? You memorized it because it was the shortest verse in the Bible, and you got a piece of candy for it in Sunday school when you were a kid. It says that Jesus wept. Friends, come on. Come on, man. Think about that. The sovereign God of the universe, the creator of the universe, becomes flesh. Knows the end from the beginning. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus says, this is how it's all going to shake out. And in the middle of the chapter, Jesus, who is above and beyond and outside of, comes into and cries over the death of his friend and the misery of his sisters. (laughs) Friends, think about that. God, God, how do you view God? What are the implications for God's, emotional passion? What are the implications that God regrets our sin and weeps over sin and weeps over the death of a friend and weeps over evil, but yet is not reacting to it and trying to catch up to it? Oh, friends, the implications of that are enormous. And we could spend a life time, delving into the deep well of God's beautiful nature, of His sovereignty over, but His compassion in and care for His creation. The implications, I think, are that God cares about His people deeply. He cares about how we live and what happens to us. He's not detached and uninvolved, but yet He is working all things together according to the counsel of his will. God weeps and is sorry over human rebellion but it's not out of his control. So two points we end on very quickly is that God grieves sin. That's clear. And if God grieves sin so should we We should grieve the areas in our life where we we are very much like these men of renown, the heroes of old, the guys who think that they're right with God and are maybe popular in culture and seem to have it all together but really are doing whatever they choose. We, likewise, should grieve over the places in our lives where we do whatever we want, because it grieves the heart of God. I think it's very easy. It's easy for me to just sort of put it on autopilot. I've got good theology, you know, pretty involved Christian. I mean, I'm a pastor of a church, you know, that's what I do. I'm here every day, trying my best, reading the Bible, praying. And isn't it just so easy to kind of put yourself on autopilot and just sort of make your heart and your mind immune to the passion of God for the centrality of his glory in your life? God grieves over the sin of his people, and so should we. We should grieve over our own sin, and the passion that God has towards it should produce in us not a despair, but a a courage and an urgency to fight it, And then secondly, amidst this great sin, God gives grace. And friends, here I think is actually the point of the passage, this verse 8. Do you notice that little glimmer of hope amongst this ridiculous debauchery and evil hearts? We see in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord Friends, that word favor means grace. And grace is, by its very definition, unmerited favor by God. God gives Noah favor and grace first. And then after that grace comes Noah's changed life. God is not surveying humanity and saying, okay, there's only one good guy here. And I'm going to choose Noah out from amongst these because Noah's a pretty good guy. No, friends, the clear implication of the text in this, in, in, in here in verse 8, is that God gives Noah favor solely because of his grace. God Sets his grace on Noah and decides to work through Noah for the preservation of his creation and his people. God gives grace to Noah. First comes grace in Noah's life. And then comes the changed heart. We read just the next verse. Next week we'll pick it up in verse 9. It says that these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Notice that the righteousness of Noah comes after the unmerited grace of God in verse 8. We oftentimes look to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 as the, really the first instance of God's setting his sovereign grace and calling a man out. And I think we even see it here that God is, gives unmerited favor to Noah solely because of grace. Friends, the point of this passage is not, okay, little boys and girls, all of these people over here were really bad. Some of them started out good. They were the children of Seth. But they ended up being really bad too, like their bad cousins, the sons of Cain. But over here, boys and girls, is little Noah. And he was really good. So don't be like Cain and the almost good enough sons of Seth. Be like Noah, boys and girls. Friends, that's not what this passage is saying. We're not like Noah, we're like the sons of God and daughters of men who do whatever we want. We are verse 5. We do, our hearts are inclined towards evil before Christ comes. And Noah is a picture of the hope to come. Noah is like a pre shadow of Christ that God will set his favor on a man. In this case, in God's unfolding of redemptive history, Noah clearly needed God's grace to obey and to stand against the disobedient world. And we'll talk about his courage amidst disobedience next week. But in the case of the Jesus that Noah is pointing to, Jesus doesn't need God's grace because Jesus was perfect and righteous and didn't need God to overlook anything in his life and give give him unmerited favor. Because he was the perfect God man. And while Noah escapes the the floodwaters of judgment by constructing the ark that we'll read about next week, Jesus doesn't escape the floodwaters of judgment. He bears them, he takes them on himself, and then by his resurrection builds the ark of himself. And he is the ark. He's not riding on top of an ark given to him by God's grace. He is the ark. He doesn't float on the top of the waters. Jesus drinks the ocean of God's wrath dry. That's the point of this story, friends. Not be better, don't be bad. It's your bad. There's nothing you can do but long and hope for the one that will save and provide an ark and bear God's wrath. God grieves over sin, but praise God, God gives grace. And what is grace? Grace is not Figure it out. Renew your commitment. Start showing up more often. Join a Bible study. Join a church. Be here more often. Oh, friends, those are all maybe very wonderful things to do. Grace is you can't do it. I've done it for you. Look to me. That's the message of Genesis 6, 1 through 8. That's the message of the flood. It's the message of the ark. It's the message of the gospel. It's the message of the Bible, grace. You can't do it. Look to the one who has done it for you and trust in Jesus and his flood-absorbing, water-extinguishing work on the cross where he bore God's wrath and rose again in victory over it. Christian, look at this passage and be amazed. Unbeliever, look at this passage and let it drive you away from yourself and in faith towards Jesus. And this is what it means to be a Christian, to not look at your own self, to not look at your right standing, to look at your merit, to look at how you stack up in morality. But to look away to yourself to what God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross. Do that even now, friend. Do that even now. In just a moment, we're going to see two sisters from Cross Point be baptized. And in their baptism, they will really be displaying this very story that the floodwaters of judgment that this pool represents. That they will go down underneath these floodwaters of God's righteous judgment against sin. And they will rise again, not because they are good, but because Jesus is good. Let me pray. Lord, as we come now to respond to your word and to see our two of our dear sisters proclaim their faith in you and hear their testimonies. as they are baptized. Lord, we pray that you would center our hearts and our minds on the gospel. Lord, make us not like the sons of God who did whatever they chose. Lord, we, before we come to you, are stuck in verse five. Our hearts are wicked. We don't need self-improvement. We don't need tips. We need need to be brought back back to life we need grace and we need to remember that grace and that grace then needs to drive us to feel the same way about our continuing sin like you do that it grieves you and Lord let it give us strength to fight and Lord if there's anyone in this room that is not yet trusted in Jesus Lord would they would they hear these words and we Would they hear these testimonies of these two sisters and would you show them Jesus? And would they turn from trusting in themselves and turn in faith to him? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.